Well, as is my custom on Sunday mornings, I was up very early this morning, about 3.45. There's some reasons for that. I usually get an opportunity to go over my notes, and I, I can't sleep well on Saturday nights because I'm so excited about Sunday morning. And I made myself a giant pot of tea, all of which I drank. And it reminded me again how much I love tea. I love hot tea. I love iced tea. Which made me think of all the things I love. I love Krispy Kreme donuts when they're hot. I love ice cream. I love In-N-Out burgers. I love babies. I love the way they smell after they've taken a bath. I love children. I love the smell of bacon. I love the smell of coffee. It just doesn't go any farther than that. I love Tennessee football. I love ministry. I love college students. I love golf. I love going to the beach with my family. I love to read. I love the color green. I love South Africa. I love the continent of Africa. I love lions. I love new clothes. I love the hymn, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. I love French toast. And I love Kim, my wife. Now there's something about putting that last statement about loving Kim with the rest of that list that to me seems entirely unnatural. The problem with that list is that it talks about all the things I say that I love. And I'm sure you could create your own list of the things that you love as well. But what is love? Define it in your mind for a moment. What is love? The problem with the list I just read is that there's a lot of different things that are going on in each of those different things that I said I loved. And there's so much confusion about love today that we're at pandemic and epidemic proportions, portions rather, of problems in our relationships. I think one of the primary reasons for that is our definition is we don't know what love really is. We think it's a feeling or an emotion or a desire or a like or an affection or an affinity. But what is love as it relates to relationships? You don't really have to know the answer if you're a Tina Turner fan because she said what? What's love got to do? Got to do with it. Didn't get it right. Got to finish the whole thing. I guess we should say, whoa, whoa. What's love got to do with it? And frankly, Tina, that depends on your definition of love, right? The writers of the Bible, though, didn't have as big a problem with love as you and I do. There are some 27 words in classical Greek that the English translates love. When I was studying classical uh, Greek at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, I came across all these words translated love. 27 Greek terms. The most familiar, though, and basically the the root of all these loves are four. Let me give those to you just as a, a way to open up our time and study. First, there's storge. That's a Greek word that means familial love toward families, toward siblings, toward parents, toward children. Then there's phileo, which is heartfelt, tender affection. And you find that, indeed, in the Scriptures. Then there's eros, which is sexual desire, sexual lust. It's desire based on what's attractive and the object loved. I find it very interesting, by the way, that that word is not used anywhere 
in the scriptures. And then there's agape or agape, which is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. We're going to zero in on that word and that definition today and in the coming weeks as we try to unpack what love is and what love has to do with it. God is said to have love for us. God is said to be love. And every time that it's used in reference to God, this word agape shows up. It's the greatest possible love that a person could have for another. It's the only love that God is said to have for His people. And at the heart of this, this love, rather, is not desire, but this word. And if you want a synonym for love, this is it. Commitment. Love is commitment. 1 Corinthians 13 Verses 4 to 8, a very familiar stretch of Scripture I'm sure you're aware of. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag, is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And this kind of agape love never fails. We're going to come back to that section of Scripture in a few weeks and unpack what that might mean in a relationship with each other. But before we get there, we have some ground to cover. It's critical to note that every, not everyone can love the way that I just read. Not everyone is capable, has the capacity, has the heart to love in the way that we just described, that the Scriptures laid out for us. Take your Bibles for a moment and turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4. I know this song very, this passage very, very well because it's one of my, my son's little songs. 1 John chapter 4. John begins to lay out a foundation of love. And in verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love, same word, agape, one another. We're called to have this unconditional commitment to an imperfect person with one another. Now think about that for a minute. An unconditional, what? Commitment. But there's a qualifier, to an imperfect person. The only place where that falls down as a definition is we're told to agape and have love for God and He's... Obviously not an imperfect person. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. This kind of love doesn't just well up in your heart. You don't get this kind of love when you see someone on a big screen and think they're pretty. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Stop right there. Foundational to this whole issue of love that we're going to begin to look at in a man today and in a woman in the coming weeks is this. You cannot love the way God calls you to love unless you're a child of God. It's impossible to have the the maximum understanding, the maximum impact, the maximum enjoyment of love unless you're a Christian. Verse 8, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. You could say God is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person and to imperfect people. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent us, His only begotten Son, into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation or the satisfaction for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love 
one another. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we've beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses then that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in Him. And God abides in Him. By this, love is completed or perfected with us. That we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. The one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Those are powerfully encouraging words and powerfully convicting words. In fact, he says love, genuine biblical love with one another is the litmus test of salvation. If you cannot love unconditionally an imperfect person with a commitment that's enduring, there's a great chance that you may not even know the Redeemer. You may not be saved. Now, I bring that up to say from the very beginning that we're going to start in the coming weeks unpacking and kind of unleashing what love is so that we can understand how to do it. The love we're going to talk about that will lead into romance, that will lead into relationships, isn't romantic love. It isn't a feeling. It isn't even relational love in terms of a guy-girl before it's Christian love. That presupposes, by the way, that none of us who are genuinely believers would choose to engage ourselves in any kind of relationship in a romantic way with an unbeliever. And we'll have a lot more to say about that later. Take all the data we just had from 1 John and bring it with you as you turn back over to Ephesians chapter 5. This will be our text for today and we're going to, I think, glean some amazing principles as men as we look into this text. And I'm a little uh, shy, I'm a little gun shy, especially with my own wife sitting here, that the girls are going to look over our shoulders into exactly who we're supposed to be and the accountability that I think that's going to bring on our lives. First of all, let me say... This is about a husband loving, same word, agape, same word, a husband loving his wife. This is where the command to love his wife is, and this is where the duty and the commitment and how that all flows out is. But you may be saying, Rick, I'm not married. We looked at a passage last week that had to do with a married person. We're looking at a passage this week that has to do with a married man and a married woman. So what gives? Why does that apply to me? I've said it before. We'll probably say it 15 more times. Look up. Nothing happens magical at the marriage altar. Nothing. The person who walks up on that church stage, looks that woman or that man in the eye, and says, I do, is the exact same person who comes back down. The only difference is they made a promise. You don't change in who you are just because you walk up there. That's a huge problem in misunderstanding relationships as it relates to marriage. A lot of people think, well, I've got to see this in myself. I see this in, in, in this person that I love. But it'll all work out when we get married. 
Yeah, it will all work out. It's called unravel. Typically, what you are on your worst day is who you'll present yourself to be when you're married. Why? You don't have to work anymore. You don't have to try to woo them and impress them. Kim and I have laughed before. We say, well, I'm, I'm glad that we have the rest of the scriptures besides just the don't divorce passage. Because once we made our decision, once we committed ourselves to each other, there was no way out. Now, I could look at that like, wow, I'm, I am, and I love this word, stuck with Kim the rest of my life. That's a joy. The problem is she is actually stuck with me the rest of her life. And so once you realize that, then it becomes an unconditional, say the word, commitment to an imperfect person. You want to know about marriage? Here it is. You choose who to love, and then you love who you chose. That's marriage. That's the content of marriage. But there's some specific principles that come out of that. I was so confused about love as a young man. Uh, I've told some of you about my first girlfriend, the sixth grade Kelly Lawson. I asked her to go with me by giving her a note. Kelly. I am Ricky Holland. I sit behind you in social studies. Will you go with me? Please check. Yes, no, or maybe. She checked yes, gave the note back to me. I was going with Kelly in the sixth grade. Now, I'm not really sure what that... Where did that term come from? I'm going with her. I know there's, there's all sorts of different nomenclature that comes with that, but we were going together. Now, I was absolutely embarrassed and terrified about this prospect. Two days later, we went to a... a, a um, basketball game on student body time. And we were sitting there, and I'll never forget, it was my best friend Barry Payne, his girlfriend Gina Burdett, Kelly Lawson, and me. Okay? Two girls on the inside, two guys on the outside. Sixth grade, okay? I had never gone with a girl. The only thing I knew about girls was they were, they, 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 uh, they kicked. That was about all I knew of girls before, <laughs> before this moment. Well, Barry was sitting there, and he, he, um, he held his girlfriend's hand. Now, the amount of pressure that that put on me was overwhelming. I was as close to having cardiac arrest at that moment as I've ever been since. And then he's looking behind both the girls, looking at me, going, Hold her hand. Now, I knew I was in trouble when Kelly began putting her hand on her knee. Like, Hello, Rick, this is available. Now, this may sound odd, but I suddenly realized I didn't know how to hold hands. I had seen several techniques. There's the interlocking technique. There was the grasping technique. There was the over-under technique. There was the fingers technique. There was all, I didn't know how to do this. And then I, all I can remember is when I held hands, I was uncomfortable, and I was uncomfortable holding hands with people. It happens to this day in prayer. You know the, 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 how your hand kind of locks and squeaks? Is that only mine? You start holding people's hands and you're like, okay, are they holding too tight? Am I holding too tight? Is my hand sweating? It's just a, an entirely self-conscious thing for me. Anyway, imagine that times 100 with Kelly. So I said, okay, okay, second quarter, I'll do it. Second quarter, I'll hold her hand. Okay, Barry. Eight-minute quarters. Well, here comes the second half, and I am sweating bullets at this point. It's about how I felt right there. I'm sweating, and he says, and I said, halftime. Halftime came. We went through halftime. No way. I was terrified. Third quarter came. Eight-minute quarters, right? So I'm getting up my courage. I'm getting up my courage, and I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. And so at this point, all three of them were kind of going... 
So I said, five minutes. So five minutes to go came. Four, three, two minutes to go came. And with 17 seconds on the clock, I grabbed her hand just like that. Just right on top. I did over-under technique. And I was cutting the circulation off in her hand. I know worse than anything. And I held that thing for 17 seconds. The game ended, and it was time to clap. I let go, and we clapped. And I literally, I never spoke to Kelly again. (laughs) Ever. I even went to my social studies teacher and said, Could you please move me? I just don't want to sit by her anymore. I I, I think we broke up. Um, (laughs) we, We never officialized that, but it was pretty obvious after that. Then that led into... I mean, that was kind of peer pressure. Then it led into my first real crush with Julie St. Clair in the seventh grade. Now, this was the first time. This was the first time I felt it. You know what I mean? In my stomach, when I saw her, I just went... (sighs) This was in the 80s. Actually, this was very much in the 70s. With the feathered hair. Remember that? Hardy Boys kind of stuff? And she had this hair that was feathered, and I just thought... And I would see her. Well, I got out my, my courage for two months at least. Then I asked her to go with me. I actually asked her this time. Ask her with my lips. Will, will, you, will you go with me? And she looked me dead in the eye and said, no, and walked off. <laughs> to this day, I kind of wonder where I'd blown it with that. I mean, what, I always wanted to write her and say, Julie, remember the seventh grade? Did I ask wrong or was I too short? Or I mean, what was it me? What, what was it my hair? I mean, help me out here. Give me some reasons. Have you ever felt that feeling? You know what I'm talking about. That feeling that you go to bed with and you just lay there and think, wow. And you wake up and you think, wow. And then you see them and you think, wow, wow, wow. And you get close to them and your heart starts and they say something and they're just, it's just like literally walking on the clouds. You ever felt that? Look at it around, look around, look around. Are you feeling that today maybe? Are you sitting... No, we won't go that far. (laughs) What is love? Is that love? Is that really love? Well, let's jump in this passage and see how a man loves a woman when he's married. And I want to back away from that and say these are the principles that a man has when he gets married to love his wife and a woman. His wife who is a woman. A woman who is his wife. Knowing that... Let's back up as single men and say, I want to implement those principles of biblical love now with my friends who are both guys and girls. You say, Rick, I may not marry uh, these girls, and I'm sure not going to marry my guy friends. Why do you want me to love them like this? Very simple. Same word. Same word. We're told to love each other in the exact same word and same manner that a man is told to love his wife. And guys, we could use and we need a lot of practice understanding and knowing how to love. Well, let's jump in. Ephesians chapter 5. The context here is an amazing context. Paul has just told the Ephesians, be filled with the Spirit. Be controlled by the Spirit. Let your life be like a ship with its sail fully, uh, fully up, and the Spirit of God is to, to energize and move you along. That's what it means to be moved along or filled with the Spirit. In chapter 5, verse 17. Then he talks about some results of that, singing to one another psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, giving thanks. And then we jump into relationships in verse 21. 
Paul says there's some automatic effects of being controlled by the Spirit of God. There's a melody in your heart. You sing about the goodness of God. God makes an imprint. He puts His fingerprints on your heart and that shows up everywhere. That's kind of an inside-out emotional kind of thing. You're affectionate to the things of God. Yet, the first thing he talks about after that natural effect of being filled with the Spirit is the relational effect and the relational mandates of being filled with the Spirit. So as a a title for it, you want to pull it together. Let's look at this. Not love, but commitments of a Christ-like lover. Let's look at the commitments of a Christ-like lover. We all want to love like Christ. And gentlemen, we are called to love like Christ. What are then the commitments? Not emotions, not desires, not feelings, not the ooey-gooey, rich and chewy kind of wake up in the morning bubbly thing in your stomach thing. What does it mean to genuinely love, and especially to love a woman like Christ? Well, the first is in verse 21, and it's this. A commitment to submission. A commitment to submission. Now, guys, be careful here. I'm not talking about the submission of your wife. I'm not talking about the submission of a woman. I'm talking about the man's submission. You know, a lot of people, and we'll unpack this a whole lot more, girls, in a few weeks when we talk about what it really means to submit to a husband. A lot of people misunderstand this. And they think it's a one-way thing that the man is is the dictator, he's the leader, he's the guy who makes the decisions, he hears nothing from his woman, and she's to be barefoot, pregnant, and make good meals the rest of her life. Is that the scriptural view? You know, they often begin with verse 22. You've got to begin in this uh, section, though, with verse 21. What does it say? And be subject or in submission to who? One another in the fear of Christ. Gentlemen, look up. We're going to talk in the coming weeks about what it means for a woman to submit to a man in a marriage relationship. Don't you ever, ever contextualize that in your mind without this statement from the Holy Spirit being etched over the top of all of it. We are called to submit to one another. You say, what does that mean? Well, it means that my wife has a lot to say in my life. It means I'm submitting to God, but my wife speaks into my life. It means that my decisions aren't one way. They aren't unilateral. That there's a living with her in an understanding way, as we saw in 1 Peter 4, 7 last week. The context, again, is the discussion of being filled with the Spirit. And the Spirit-filled life is being led, directed, and controlled by the Spirit of God and in the fear of Christ. Therefore, in verse 21, it says, if you're going to do that as a Christian, you're going to enjoy mutual submission to one another. That is indeed in the fear of Christ. In other words, there's an accountability before each other to submit to each other by submitting to Christ. That's what it means to have a spirit-filled life. Does this mean that the, the man is not the head of the home? Absolutely not. We're going to see that in the next verse. Does it mean that the man is not a leader? Absolutely not. But gentlemen, listen very carefully. If you ever think that you don't have something godly and spiritual to learn from your sisters in Christ, you are an arrogant man. You know who has the greatest impact in my life? It's not John MacArthur. It's not my fellow elders. It's my wife. Both by her life and her loving words, she has a great impact. And I submit to what she says as it applies to the fear of Christ and submission to God. We'll talk about her submission in the coming weeks. What does that look like, though? What would that look like in the life of a single man, that attitude of submission? Let's make it practical for us today, can we? First of all, it would look like a commitment to be teachable before God and His Word. 
It says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. It's directed not to submission horizontally to our brothers and sisters in Christ, but ultimately it's underneath the fear of Christ, who is to come to judge the living and the dead, right? We're to submit to Christ. Now, God uses spiritual siblingship in order to perfect us in ways that He doesn't use His Word to do. How does He do that? My wife knows the Word. Some of you who are friends, my friends, men and women know the Word, and you'll challenge me with something, and that's God's Spirit wooing me towards sinner and where He wants me to be in His will. So, gentlemen, let me ask you. Are you teachable? Are you in a position, we've talked about discipleship, are you in a position where you're learning the things of God and the things about yourself that need to be honed and shaped by the Spirit's control in a Spirit-filled life? Girls, as you look around at guys you might be interested in, notice whether he puts himself in the way of truth. We used that phrase a couple of weeks ago. See if he puts himself in the way of truth. What do you mean by that? If there's a sermon going on somewhere, Sunday morning, Sunday night, crossroads, Wednesday night, Bible study, see if he puts himself in the way of it. See if he actually submits himself at every opportunity to hear and to apply the Scriptures. See if he's plugged in at the church level. And if he's not... Find someone who is. Walk away from him. This is a guy, if he's not plugged in at the levels that he can be, who's saying he can do it on his own. That's a dangerous, dangerous man. Look for being teachable. Girls, listen for a guy who, after a sermon, doesn't say, uh, you know what, he missed the point of this, he did this, I wish he, he illustrated too long. He, listen for a guy who says, wow, this is what the Spirit of God did in my life today as a result of what I heard. Listen for him being most critical on his heart before the Lord, more critical in that way than he is on anyone else. See if he's teachable to others. Gentlemen, are you? When a guy comes, a girl comes and they say, you know, there's an issue in your life I want to talk to you about. What's your first response? Ladies, watch and see if he's defensive. In fact, if you get in a dating, courting, togethering, whatever we're going to call it, relationship with a guy... Sometime in the first month, find some sin in his life and confront him over it and see what he does. I'm serious. Find an issue in his life and say, Boy, you know, I'm not really sure you should have said that in that way. And if he's defensive, say, Thank you very much, and I will see you at church maybe. <laughs> Look for a man who is submissive to the truth and who's teachable. The truth in any element, in a sermon... In a comment, in a confrontation, in an encouragement, in a book, in a tape. Look for someone who's submissive to the truth there, who understands they're committed to being submissive to Christ. That's love. You love Christ when you obey Him, right? By this you know that you're my disciples. If you keep my commandments, John chapter 8 says. Girls also look to see if he's submissive in general. To authority. See if he's submissive to authority. Guys, are you submissive to the authorities? Your bosses. Do you submit without gossip and slander? Do you do what they ask you without complaint? Are you submissive to your parents when they give you advice that needs to go a little further than advice? Little things. Are you submissive to the referees on the Monday night volleyball league or the Tuesday night basketball league? Are you submissive to the law? We need to go right on to the next point after that one. Speed limit, those kind of things. Anyway, number two. Are you submissive, first of all? Number two. Another commitment of a 
Christ-like lover is a commitment to sensitivity. Not only committed to submission, and the submission is anything God would use to bring the Word of God to bear on your life, but next, a commitment to sensitivity. To sensitivity. You say, sensitive to what? We began this last week. Sensitive to the woman's role in life and the woman's role in a relationship. Look at verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. You're saying, yep, there you go, Rick. That's for the women. Let's skip down to the guy part. As to the Lord. Gentlemen, listen. You need to be sensitive to the fact that she's following you because God told her to. Because in following you, that's following the Lord. That should make tremendous impact on how you make decisions. And you practice that now, not just when you have a wife. For the husband is the head of the wife. Be sensitive to that, men. Don't abuse that authority. Be sensitive to it. Why? As Christ also is the head of the church, He Himself being the Savior of the body. Here we find a direct admonition for us to submit as women and to be sensitive to that submission as men. You know, one thing I was talking to Kim about in the last few days, it's very difficult for me as a man to get up here and to preach on headship and submission. Headship's pretty easy. Submission's a little tougher for me to do. Uh, you're gonna, you need to submit to your husbands. I want to encourage you as we're going through this series, if you have any questions about that, call Kim. Call her and ask her some questions about how that fl- fleshes out in our life. In fact, maybe we'll have some Q&A toward the end of the series, Kim, where we can just talk about that. It's not a dictator-Hitler kind of relationship. It's not a I make all the decisions relationship, but I am very cognizant that she follows me and that my word in the end is what she listens to. We've had lots of times when we've had um, disagreements about something and she says this in the end. Well, that's okay. Because I'm only accountable to follow what you say. You're accountable for the decision before the Lord. <laughs> I saw a suit on sale not too long ago. We've been really good with our finances. We're we're now whittled our way out of debt. We've got some plans. And I said, honey, I, it's on sale. I mean, it doesn't matter that it's this much money. It's on sale, which means it's not that much money. So I should get it. And she goes, well, it's not really in our plan. We need to, we don't, don't do that. And I said, honey, it's on, Jimmy A's is having a sale. Now, if you don't know what Jimmy A's is, it's a store for short people. It's a great store. It's having a sale. I need to go do this. And then she, we, we talked about it. We didn't argue. We just discussed it for a minute. And uh, um, she said, well, I'll tell you what. You know what? I don't think it's a wise idea, but if you want to do it, I'm going to follow you and, uh, because you're accountable to the Lord on whether that's a good decision or not. I said, you had to bring God in this thing, didn't you? I was okay until he comes in the picture. And you got to remember, guys, that a woman is called to do that. Then what are you going to learn now? Gentlemen, learn to be sensitive to women. Learn to be sensitive to them. Girls, watch for this man in any position of leadership he might gain. At a Bible study, on an athletic team, in an intramural. Watch him when they go out and play. See if he's in a position of leadership, how he wields that leadership. And you'll have a good idea of how he'll wield it in a marriage. Remember, you don't change just because you made a promise. Is this man sensitive to those who are not at the top? 
Girls, beware of a guy who always wants to be closest to the head guy. Beware of a guy who doesn't look after the people at the bottom, the people who are not in charge, the people who don't give him affirmation that may give him gain. Watch for a guy who's sensitive to everyone, whether they're socially awkward, whether they're physically awkward, no matter what it is, watch for a man who doesn't pay attention to position or to privilege. Gentlemen, do you understand authority and submission as we, we talked about biblically? And are you spiritually mature enough to lead the people you're closest to? Girls, if you get involved in a relationship with a guy, the first thing I would ask him is, who are you discipling? Who's discipling you? What's the flow of, of spiritual maturity and data coming into your life and out of your life? Who are you involved with spiritually in a relational relationship that's a spiritual friendship? And if he's not mature enough to lead the people around him, his roommates, his siblings, if he's not mature enough to do that, ladies, what makes you think he'll be mature enough to lead you? Guys, be sensitive, be sensitive, be sensitive. Now, and you'll be sensitive then. Be committed to it. So a commitment of submission, a commitment to sensitivity. Thirdly, a commitment to sacrifice. And I've got to tell you, as I was studying this week, this absolutely cleaned my clock. There was a point that I thought, you know, I really just don't need to teach this. I'll get uh, Bill Zimmer or Phil Haw, one of the other, other elders, to come and teach this because I'm, I'm unqualified to do this. Look at verse 25. Husbands, there it is. Love your wives. Now that's hard enough, and I wish the sentence ended there. But look what it says. Love your wives how? As Christ, just as Christ also loved the church. If that's not enough, look what it says next. And gave himself up for her. Here you find the direct command for a husband to love his wife. But notice that there's a significant qualifier, as Christ loved the church. And there's a qualifier to that, he loved by giving himself. The position of spiritual leadership in a marriage relationship that God has given the husband is not based on ruling or dominating or commanding or subjecting, because that's not how Jesus leads, is it? Rather, it's based on Jesus' sacrifice of himself. Greater love has no man than this, that he what? Lay down his life for his friend. This kind of love knows no boundaries of sacrifice to bring good to the person who's loved. And based on the analogy, it has the heart that you would even die or be willing to die for the woman of God's choice for you. Now, if we can back way up, if that's the kind of love we're supposed to have toward our wives, gentlemen, and the kind of love we're supposed to be working toward now as single men, why is it that we cut the dessert in half and want the bigger piece when we take a girl out? You say, Rick, that is so mundane. Is it really? What are the little sacrifices that you're making for the people around you? Are you constantly looking, how can I sacrifice in the smallest ways? Because listen, guys, if you can't sacrifice in the small ways, you'll never sacrifice in the big ones. Is your life a living sacrifice? What does this kind of love look like? So we can realize it as men and recognize it as a woman. Well, first of all, this is a man who has a pattern and reputation for sacrificial service. I love it when we have opportunities to serve around our ministry. 
I like to see who volunteers. Who's the first guy to say, I'll do that? I don't care if there's no glory. I don't care if I have to stay late. I don't care if I have to come early. I will do it. Because it brings honor and glory to the Lord. I'll do that. I'll sacrifice. Ladies, watch for that guy who's first to volunteer for the things that need to be done. Gentlemen, be a volunteer. And I'm not talking about a Tennessee volunteer here. Be a volunteer. Watch how this man sacrifices and serves his roommates. Boy, there's a big one, isn't it? I had a roommate one time, uh, my first year of seminary, who, uh, who loved me. He sacrificed for me. And I knew this because he would, when he washed his clothes, he'd wash mine. When he washed his dishes, he'd wash mine. He was constantly sacrificing for me. And you know what? As he did this more and more, you know what it did to me? It made me have affection for him. It made me like his presence. It made me want to spend time with him. He became attractive spiritually to me, as, to me as a man who understood sacrifice. Now flip it around. Gentlemen, you want to be attractive to your wife someday? Learn how to sacrifice now. Are you the guy at Bible study when something needs to be done, you say, that's me. I'll do that. Even if no one ever knows it, I'll do that. Foster in your heart this idea of sacrifice with your family, with your Bible study members. This is the guy who's first to repent after an argument. That's a sacrifice. You know what it's like? could be with a girl, could be with a roommate, could be with a family member. You're in a heated discussion, an argument, a debate. Things get a little further than they should emotionally. And you, you catch yourself. Are you the guy who says, I'm going to make this right first. I'll repent first. I'll ask forgiveness first. I will not ask the person who's involved here to do what I know I need to do before I do it. Kim and I have a little thing in our relationship. We, on occasion, have disagreements. And we've committed to each other that we want to have a race to softness. Now, I've got to confess that she beats me to that end a lot more than I do. But we're in the middle of something. At some point, one of us has to stop and say, I'm going to be soft first. I'm going to own my mistake. I'm going to own my sin. Even if they're more wrong and we're wrong first. Even if I did nothing wrong, all I did wrong was argue. Then I'm still wrong. A man who understands sacrifice understands how to repent first. Ladies, watch for a repenter. Find yourself a repenter. Find yourself someone who's not defensive. That's a sacrifice. Someone who doesn't give you 30 arguments. Remember Jesus, when he was brought before his accusers, what did he say? Nothing. And he was right. Watch how this guy loves his friends, girls. And you'll get a glimpse of coming attractions. If he's selfish with his friendships now, guess what? He'll be selfish with you later. Watch for a man who understands sacrifice. Number four, commitment to submission, sensitivity, sacrifice. Fourthly, a commitment to sanctification. That just means holiness, a commitment to sanctification in the relationship. Look at verse 26. Love your wife that you can sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the Lord, the church, in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. At issue here is the love Christ has for us that motivates us to holiness and purity, and so should a man's love be for a woman. 
Men are called to lead, to protect women in this area. We're called to be the people who, the men who, uh, the leaders who put boundaries around our relationships that fence out sin. And the ultimate accountability is that we present our wives to God someday. And the test will be whether or not we've preserved and protected their purity. What do you mean by that, Rick? Well, we're going to talk in the coming weeks about what sexual purity means in a relationship from 1 Thessalonians 4. So I won't unpack all that right now. But suffice it to say that a godly man's primary goal is not what he can get from his wife or date, but how he can honor her and keep her pure. Notice this happens back in the text. By the washing of the word. Women, don't let yourself be interested in a man who's biblically illiterate because he will not be able to wash you with the word if he doesn't know it. If he can't lead his own life by the scriptures, what makes you think he'll lead yours? What does this look like in practice? Well, this kind of guy doesn't put a woman in a compromising situation. This kind of man doesn't take a woman to a movie and the movie begins going a direction morally that it shouldn't and he stays there. He says, you know what, we need to leave. This is a guy who understands how to use the remote control a little better than we naturally know how to use it. The off button, the change button, when things go a direction that don't honor the Lord. This is a man who doesn't ask a girl to get in the backseat of a car for a prayer meeting. This is a man who goes into his apartment, her apartment or her dorm room, and there's no one else there and says, you know what, we shouldn't be here alone. This is a bad idea. It's a man, ladies, who protects your purity at any and all costs. You know why it's so important now? If he does it now, he'll do it later. But if he doesn't do it now, you may have problems later. He treats you as if you're someone else's wife until you're his. That's simple enough, isn't it? Keeps his hands to himself. You want it simple? We'll come back to the physical side of relationships later. In other words, the relationship that he has with you gals, and gentlemen, the relationship we want to have with with all of our sisters in the Lord, is that the, the effect of our relationship with him is a move toward Christ. Not in confession, but in adoration. I know relationships that... The longer they go between a guy and a girl, that leads them to prayer. But it's not the prayer that says, I love you, Lord, thank you for my brother or sister. It's a prayer that says, please forgive us for what we did. Well, this kind of love is a commitment to sanctification, sacrifice, sensitivity, submission. Fifthly, a commitment to sensibility. Sensibility, verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. You know, we spend a lot of time taking care of ourselves, right? For some of you, the most prized object in your room is your mirror. We dress ourselves, exercise, eat. We have reflexes that are natural. The bottom line is that we naturally provide for, we naturally care for, we naturally cherish and nourish who? Us. And Paul is instructing husbands to take that same automatic nurture and care that you have for yourself and make it as natural to care for your wife. 
Now, the Greek word for nurture is very interesting. It basically means to bring to maturity and is most often used of raising children. Girls, can you see that kind of nurture in a man? Sure you can. Is he leading the people around him to maturity in Christ? And guys, since this is used most often with children, how are you with kids? We're going to come back to that. But guys, how are you with kids? We get a lot of calls at the Holland House for which I'm eternally grateful. Hey, we'd love to watch your kids for you and let you go out on a date. Thank you very much. You know, Kim, we don't get a lot of calls from guys, do we? We will this week. One of you guys is going to do that, and you're going to, I'm going to come home and say, "Well, did you did you change Johnny? Yeah, that's a good. You're going to put the diaper as a hat on his head or something. Spend some time with some children. Learn learn to nurture. The Greek word for cherish means to soften or to warm with body heat. Now, don't get the wrong idea here. It's used to describe a mother hen using her body heat to keep the little chicks warm as she sits on her nest. Bottom line is this, guys. A woman is not the only tender person in a relationship. What does this kind of love look like in practice? This is a man who cries at movies and watches Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, and Emma with a woman. Did you get my notes, Kim? Did you write that in there? Actually, there's some truth to that idea. This is the kind of love that's soft and caring It looks out for the softer side of women with tenderness and consideration. It's marked by the tenderness of our Savior who cares for our every need. And you need to begin looking for that. Guys, let me ask you this. You're a Bible study. When's the last time you went out with some of the girls in your Bible study and looked at their tires just to make sure they're okay? Ask them, you know what, do you need your oil changed this week? I'd love love to take care of that for you. Let's treat the women like they need to be treated. Let's take care. Now, girls, don't get too happy about that, okay? All the girls started sitting up in their chairs right there. Seriously, guys, we could, uh, I don't think we can overdo that right now. And girls, when some guy does this, don't think, he likes me. Think, well, he's trying to apply what the Scriptures say. He's being sensitive. Ladies, watch out for a man who's more interested in you. Watch for a man, rather, who's more interested in you and your needs than his own who will do things like not watch a college football game to do something that you need done. Did you get my notes, Kim, and write this stuff in? Number six, a commitment to security. A commitment to security. Submission, sensitivity, sacrifice, sanctification, sensibility, last security. This is just in verses 31 to 33. For this cause a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. The two shall become one flesh... From Genesis, that's the divine pattern for marriage. This mystery is great. Then Paul brings us back to reality. But I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. How serious is God about the relationship between a husband and wife? So serious that he used it to represent his own relationship with his bride, the church. Now, lest you think this was all just some big analogy and some comparison, look back at verse 33. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife even as himself. And let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. It's a simple point. The kind of love our Lord has for his bride is secure. It doesn't break up. It doesn't dissolve. It doesn't go away. There's no fear of rejection or breaking it off or breaking up. The Lord's love is enduring and eternal. And so should ours, men, for that ultimate woman that God will bring in our lives. 
Now, I can't tell you who God's will for your life is, but I can tell you that once you say, I do, that is God's will for your life. Till death do us part. Now, does this mean that you never break up? Does it mean that you might not even break off an engagement? Absolutely not. And again, can I take a shot at a, at a false ideology that's going around today in some circles of, of courtship? That if, you're, if you make any commitment to a girl or you even get engaged and you break it off, then you've somehow divorced. That's just errant. It's wrong. There's no biblical support for it. It's better to make the right decision now than live with the consequences later. You say, what if I get married, though, and then think, well, I married the wrong person. Well, guess what? You married the right person. Now you, gotta, you chose who to love, and now you have to what? Love who you chose. Let me say it this way. You get to love who you chose. The question of integrity of your friendship is whether or not you can remain friends after you break things off. If you can, then that was a good relationship. If you break things off and things just absolutely unravel between you and a guy or you and a girl, something was wrong in the relationship. Now, it doesn't mean you have to walk around and be best friends. It means that there's no lingering bitterness, though. And we'll talk about breaking up later. What does this kind of look like before love look like before marriage? It honors God's sexual standards. It says in verse 31 that that kind of relationship is only for a marriage. It's loyal to those who are closest to you. The kind of love a man understands that facilitates forgiveness and reconciliation in all the conflicts. Listen, folks. Love is not some willy-nilly infatuation that puts you on a cloud of emotion that gives you butterflies, keeps you up at night, and wakes you up in the morning. That's not love. Love is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. True Christian love is deeper and so connected to Christ that it's inseparable. And it might sound a little strange to hear, but in a biblical marriage, the couple openly admit that they love someone even more than their husband or wife. And who is that someone? The Lord Jesus Christ. I like the song that Wes King sings. There's another man in her life. He goes on to talk about that being Christ. A few years ago, I read a biography uh, called A Spectacle Unto God, I think it was. It was about Christopher Love. Aptly named, I might add. Christopher Love was a brilliant Welsh preacher just coming into the prime of his pastoral ministry when a nervous English government in 1651 executed him, took his head off. And what intrigues me about this great preacher is not his preaching and ministry, although that was significant. What impressed me so much was the relationship he had with his wife. These two shared the kind of love that held Christ and the things of God above everything else for themselves and each other. You know, Jesus said when a disciple is fully trained, he'll be like his teacher. That means a man is called in a, in a marriage to disciple his wife, so eventually she should be like her teacher. Well, I want to read you a letter that was written by Christopher Love's wife the day before his execution. This was July 14, 1651. My wife and I read this a few years ago, and it had a profound impact on our thoughts of each other and the Lord. This is her writing, Mary Love, writing to Christopher. Quote, Before I write a word further, I beg you not to think that your wife is now writing, rather, a friend. I hope you have freely given up on your wife and your children to God 
who has said in Jeremiah 49:11, Leave your fatherless children, I will preserve them alive, and let your widow trust in me. Your maker, Christopher, will be my husband and the father to your children. Oh, that the Lord would keep you from having one troubled thought about your family. I desire freely to give you up to your father's hands. And not only to look upon it as a crown of glory for you to die for Christ, but as an honor for me that I should have a husband to leave for Christ. I dare not speak to you, nor have a thought within my own heart of my unspeakable loss, but wholly keep my eye fixed on your inexpressible and inconceivable gain. You're leaving your children, your brothers and sisters, to go on to the Lord Jesus, your eldest brother. You leave your friends on the earth to go to the enjoyment of the saints and angels and the spirits of just men made perfect in glory. You leave the earth for heaven and exchange a prison for a palace. And if earthly affections should begin to arise, Christopher, I hope that a spirit of grace that's within you will quell them, knowing that all the things here are but dross in comparison of those things that are above. I know you will keep your eye fixed on the hope of glory, which makes your feet trample on the loss of earth. My dear, I know God has glory for you, but also for you, it. But I am persuaded that He will sweeten the way for you to come to the enjoyment of it. When you're putting on your clothes tomorrow morning, oh, think, I'm now putting on my wedding garments to go be with my everlasting Redeemer to be married. When the messenger of death comes to you to take you to the block, let him not seem dreadful to you, but look to him as a messenger that brings you tidings of eternal life. When you climb the scaffold, think, as you told me you would, that you are climbing aboard the fiery chariot to carry you to your father's house. And when you lay down your precious head to receive your father's stroke, remember what you said to me. Quote, Though my head should be severed from my body, yet in that moment my soul will be united with my head, the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. And though it might seem something bitter that I am leaving this life sooner than we had wanted, Mary, let us consider that it is the decree and the will of our Heavenly Father and it will not be long before we shall enjoy one another in heaven again. Let us comfort one another with these things. Be comforted, my dear heart. It is but a little stroke, and you shall be there, where the weary shall be at rest, and where the wicked shall cease from troubling us. Remember that you may eat dinner with the bitter herbs, but you shall have a sweet supper with Christ tomorrow night. My dear, by what I write to you, I do not intend to teach you. For all these comforts I receive from the Lord by you teaching me. I will write no more, nor ever, ever trouble you further, but commit you into the arms of God with whom you and I will forever be. Farewell, my dear. I shall never see your face until we both behold the face of the Lord Jesus at that great day. Love, Mary.
I'm not sure if you've ever heard the sound of love, but you just did. This is a relationship that was so centered on the things of God that when it really came to the crux of life, that's all that showed. Gentlemen, that won't happen when we say, I do. That won't happen when we say, will you marry me? That won't happen next week. It's got to happen today by becoming the man that God wants us to be. So the women who God puts in our life will be shepherded the way He wants us to shepherd them. That's the fruit of a godly man's love for a woman, that she would encourage him before his death blow. Genuine biblical love lasts and works only in Christ and shared between two people who love Him and each other. Let's pray. Father, I look at this passage, I listen to this dear couple's testimony and I feel so inadequate, insufficient, incapable and unworthy to be married to the the precious gift of Kim that you've given me. I listen to the words of Paul and see that there is so much more for me to become and I beg your mercy on these single men, Lord, that the, the hour of becoming will be now, not later, that the process will begin and their hearts and their love and their commitments right now. Lord, I pray for the relationships that will begin, some of which will happen in this room. Make yourself so the focus that should the end of our lives come quicker than we anticipate, that will bear the kind of fruit that was just shared between Christopher and Mary Love. Thanks for their example, Lord, and the testimony that it is to us. Make us the kind of lovers as men that Christ is toward us as the church. In Jesus' name, amen.